Before the existence of written records, humans systematized combat. From prehistory and into the modern day, martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization. Whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war, or to compete, or to preserve a tradition, or to touch personal greatness, these codified methods push us to ask questions, to explore, to express, to test, and to tell stories. This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. Officially, this is the 73rd episode of the Jamie Club podcast. If we take into account that three of the episodes were really glorified adverts, it is episode 70, and therefore as good a time as any for a reflection on why I do these shows and what the future might hold. If you're a long-term listener to this podcast, you might be aware that certain themes have emerged. Every season so far, we've had a Halloween episode. Season 1 looked at specific areas of self-protection teaching. Seasons 2, 3 and 4 included several martial movie massacre shows. Season 2 heavily featured The Way of Animals. Folklore, fables, parables and fantasy fiction are regularly used as metaphors and allegories, with Season 3 dedicating three standalone episodes to this particular theme. Despite wanting to stay away from becoming an interview-based podcast, my crossover discussion episode with Lee Sims' Striking Thoughts podcast in Season 3 motivated me to produce 10 discussion shows with invited guests starting in Season 4 and bleeding over into the current season. I'm not finished with any of the above-mentioned themes and the plan is to return to them all very soon periodically. Not long after the release of Convince a Little Man, it was suggested that one of the show's broad themes involved going left field on martial arts and self-protection. Prior to this, I thought that the only overarching idea was my critical thinking filter. I make no apologies from the get-go. I made a conscious decision that the podcast would be reserved for my most self-indulgent material. The way I saw it, there were more than enough other martial arts shows that provide biographical-style interviews and deep dives into either technique analysis or self-protection topics. This type of material can be better handled on my YouTube channel anyway, as well as my blog and through the social media pages. Those of you who have read Jeff Thompson's kind forward to my first martial arts book, Mordred's Victory, will know that my published material was always inclined to step outside of conventional martial arts topics. Jeff's main reservation about my martial arts writing career was that it would not hold me. The topic was a regular point he made in our personal discussions. However, rather than just plunging further down the proverbial rabbit hole with an even greater desire to remove all evidence of martial arts relevancy, I propose we introduce a new turn in the burrow. My new reoccurring theme will be Everything is Martial Arts. Don't worry, I'm not going to abandon critical thinking and start with biased, foregone conclusions before collecting dubious evidence. These are going to be intentionally whimsical discussions and fun challenges on how martial artists might view other interests. Besides, martial arts have far stronger connections and influences over history and culture than might seem obvious. Religious scriptures of all the world's extant major religions feature descriptions of fighting disciplines. Most deities within the Hindu-Buddhist pantheon have their own signature weapon and are often considered originators of certain fighting disciplines. The Torah describes Jewish heroes who used innovative weapons against their opponents, the Philistines, who forbade them to smelt or work metal. From Samson's use of an ass's jawbone as a club against multiple opponents to David's use of a shepherd's sling against the giant Goliath, The image presented by these Judaic and later biblical warriors is comparable to the debunked yet pervasive myths of Okinawan peasantry developing kobujitsu to use their farming tools against oppressive Japanese samurai. Such veneration of resourcefulness might be found in modern combative and self-defence training that promotes the use of incidental weaponry. If you'll forgive an Anglo-centric perspective, this brings us onto something we might call the Robin Hood archetype. This character was introduced to me by my grandfather and was probably one of my first martial arts heroes. 
a folkloric character. He may have taken his name from the mischievous sprite Robin Goodfellow, an alternative name for Puck, but the earliest clear textual reference of Robin Hood tie him to his longbow expertise. Hood's weapon of choice was a symbol for the English yeoman, the social class most known to represent medieval archers. The martial art of English archery was often credited with winning decisive battles in the Hundred Years' War. Through his development in ballads, poems, plays and narrative fiction over the centuries, Robin Hood displayed skills in other martial arts, including swordsmanship and quarter-staff fighting. In many ways, this figure, which we can accept as a cross-cultural universal symbol of the fighting underdog, was defined by his martial art identity. Robin Hood and his folkloric equivalents across the globe were experts in guerrilla warfare, a reoccurring occupation of legendary martial artists. Song Jian's rebellion against the Song dynasty in 12th century China would become an inspirational figure for the veneration of outlaws in subsequent centuries. He and his army of outlaws were all given distinctive martial arts identities in the 14th century novel The Water Margin. Japan's Ishikawa Goemon and his band of ninjas became Japan's Sengoku period Robin Hood equivalent. They stole from the rich to distribute amongst the poor. Although referred simply as a thief in the first record of his supposed existence, Goman quickly developed into an anti-establishment folk hero during the Edo period and added to rapidly developing ninjutsu mythology. The Robin Hood underdog archetype, far from being unique to England as a concept, is a reoccurring ideal in martial arts subculture. Oppressed people find hope in the idea that they can tip the balance in their favour against stronger bullies by having knowledge of combative systems. In real documented history and to this day, guerrillas have succeeded often through not winning but simply by not losing. They weaponise their environment against better armed opponents. If you think about it, Robin Hood in most of the popular stories doesn't vanquish and defeat the Sheriff of Nottingham and King John. He simply stays out the battle until King Richard I returns. On an individualistic level, this idea can translate to small beating big by having access to better skills. Martial arts folklore from ancient sources to modern films and television shows continue to push this motivational narrative. Think of the unarmed, innocent defending himself against the gunman. Ancient mythology across the world not only features wars, duels and fighting contests but also even provides fanciful origin stories of certain disciplines. For example, Theseus and Heracles of Greek mythology are often credited with creating the hybrid combat sport of Pancration. Crossing over into religion again, we might compare these origin stories to Indian wrestling scholars crediting the creation of their oldest recorded organised fighting discipline, the combat wrestling art of Malayuda, to the deity Krishna, the eighth avatar of Vishnu and a supreme god in his own right. Norse religion made their thunder god Thor god of wrestling. He famously lost a hard-endured contest against Eli, the personification of old age, who was representative of Utgarda Loki's old nurse. Today, the Scandinavian martial art of Glima, both in its self-defence and sporting form, is said to be a surviving system of the Viking Age. Meanwhile, Chinese folklore credits the rebellious king and god of war, Chiyu, often depicted as a fantastic anthropomorphic composition of animals and metal, as the inventor of weapons. Activities as distinct as the modern art of parkour and the ancient Olympic sport of javelin throwings have strong historic connections to the martial arts. The European tradition of mounting a horse from the left is a callback to soldiers over many centuries avoiding getting entangled with their swords. There's even a theory surrounding the origin of the fist bump gesture, with the earliest coming from the dancers of ancient Egypt but it has also been suggested that Europeans, at least, may have adopted it from boxers. Speaking of the martial art of boxing, there's little denying the way it has flavoured the English vernacular. Knockout, gloves off, punching above one's weight and throwing in the towel are still popular phrases used today with little thought of their boxing roots. The sport's most notorious of fouls, hitting below the belt, has become a metaphor for saying or doing something unfair. On the ropes, a position a fighter typically avoids in the boxing ring has become a term to simply mean being in trouble. Some boxing metaphors have become so popular that the original definition has become secondary. Coming up to scratch, now meaning to meet a satisfactory level or a required minimum standard, stems from the old bare-knuckle days when rounds commenced after fighters made their way back to a designated scratch line. 
down and out, is now infrequently used to describe a fighter who can no longer continue and has become a noun and an adjective to describe a destitute person. Professional wrestling's own brand of cant slang is in a library of its own, but grappling arts in general have made a direct impact on our language. People wrestle and grapple with problems when they are having difficulty understanding or managing something. Headlock, although not a universally accepted slang phrase, often crops up as a metaphor to describe one entity restricting another in some legal or legislative fashion. With the growing popularity of Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes and mixed martial arts as a spectator sport, tapping out is also becoming a burgeoning phrase to compete with throwing in the towel. Martial arts are quite literally part of the English language and I'd love to hear from bilingual and multilingual listeners who can share phrases and terms that had their origins in fighting disciplines. Martial arts also have a strong presence throughout great literature. Consider the ancient Mesopotamian poem that is the 18th century BCE epic of Gilgamesh, perhaps the earliest surviving work of notable literature, where the titular hero wrestles the tamed wild man and his future sidekick Enkidu. Drawing from the scant description of the bout, it sounds like they fought a form of belt wrestling where girdles were gripped. The bout is significant in many ways within the story and becomes a reoccurring trope throughout mythology, folklore and fiction. Homer's epic poems The Iliad and the Odyssey feature descriptions of the three distinct styles of Grecian unarmed combat, wrestling, boxing and pancration, as well as armed duels with javelins, shields and swords, along with some incidental weaponry. In the case of the Iliad, this all occurs during an actual war. The Odyssey's final four books has the poem's hero string a bow whilst in disguise, perform an act of masterful archery, and then, using the remaining arrows along with swords and spears, sets about massacring the suitors who have overrun his home. As can be imagined, the ancient Indian epics with their martial arts deities and stories of wars are full of descriptions of fighting disciplines. The Mahabharata had some particularly descriptive examples. This includes an unarmed, no-holds-barred fight to the death between Bhima and Jamuta that includes headbutts, knee strikes, punches, throws and kicks, ending with Bhima whirling his opponent around his head a hundred times before dashing him to death on the ground. However, the lengthy duel between Arjuna and Karna would give the most elaborate of anime conflicts a run for their money. The fight features traditional weapons such as bows and swords, incidental weapons such as rocks and even trees, as well as invoking mystical powers that bring about mass destruction of each side's troops. The Germanic hero Beowulf, titular character of the oldest surviving epic poem written in Old English, is very much defined by his martial arts abilities. He fights three monsters in the story, and the first one, Grendel, is defeated in unarmed combat. We're told that Beowulf puts this man-eating menace into an arm lock, The only way Grendel can free himself is by leaving said arm behind. The relationship between martial arts and the stage, moving into film, is a huge topic. Dramatic works were readily created to commemorate great wars or retell folktales featuring battling heroes. Certain cultures freely used stage combat to tell a good portion of the narrative to the point where it became an integral part of the medium. We see this being particularly common in Asia, where skills in staging creative hand-to-hand combat scenes became part of such institutions as Chinese opera. Let us not forget that some of Shakespeare's most memorable plays, Romeo and Juliet, Much Ado About Nothing, Macbeth, King Lear, Hamlet and Richard III feature prominent plot-driven duels. From the earliest recorded performances and until the present day, legitimate fighters have become dramatic performers and dramatic performers have turned to legitimate fighting. It wasn't long ago that boxers couldn't just rely on their fighting skills to earn a living in front of an audience. Many clowned, performed tumbling acts, sang and danced. Jack Dempsey worked as a professional clown up until he got his major break in professional boxing. The world's first black heavyweight champion never left his other forms of performance. He not only clowned and sang on his ascent to the top and his descent after losing the world title, but also during his championship reign. This was when he fled to Europe to escape the trumped-up prison sentences a disgruntled white America had slapped on him under the newly instituted Mann Act. Likewise, many circus artists up until the first half of the 20th century were expected to box and or wrestle as well as perform other acts. In turn, a good number of great fighters cut their teeth in the circus, fairground and carnival boxing booths during their early days. Professional wrestling arguably transformed from the legitimate combat sport of catch-as-catch-can to the work spectacle of today under such touring show circumstances. 
Wing Chun has its mythological origins tied to a touring opera company. During the medieval period, it was not uncommon to see nobles stage professional productions where they reenacted their own fights on the battlefield. Gilles de Rey, a lord and knight originally famed for fighting alongside Joan of Arc, and later convicted and executed for being a serial killer, staged lavish productions he starred in that showed off his martial arts skills in mock battles. The samurai of Edo period Japan dedicated a huge amount of time romanticising and mythologizing their martial arts exploits through no and kabuki theatre. They also famously turned their intentions to philosophy, art and writing. Where would we be without the descriptive fight scenes of narrative fiction? Even my mother tried to expand my interest in literature by reading to me the exciting duel in Georgette Hare's debut novel The Black Moth. Hare, known for pioneering and reigning supreme over the so-called Regency romance genre, surprised many of her casual readers by her impassioned skill at bringing historical events to life outside the 1752 to 1825 period where her most popular works are set. For example, The Conqueror not only holds up as a prime example of the author's famed exhaustive research, but also includes a description of the Battle of Hastings that's comparable to Bernard Cornwell in its grisly realism. Returning to the Black Moth, and Mum didn't need to convince me that martial arts were a part of the fashionable Georgian and Regency scenes. After all, the martial art of fencing with its roots in 15th century Spain and Italy became recognised as a legitimate sport during this period. Bare-knuckle boxing also reached the peak of its popularity, and not content with just watching the underclasses fight for their amusement, the aristocratic patrons of fighters in these illegal contests readily took lessons. The poet Lord Byron was just one example of a writer who got bitten by the boxing bug and took lessons from former heavyweight champion John Gentleman Jim Jackson. Byron's great poetic rival in the Romantic movement was John Keats. Most accounts confirm the two loathed each other and their differences as writers stretched their shared genre to breaking point. Keats is known for dying from the stress caused by reading a bad review of his work, something that Byron found hilarious and included in one of his poems. But far from being a fragile figure, it's well known that he also loved boxing and was known to be a very enthusiastic street fighter. By most accounts, the Victorian and Edwardian author Arthur Conan Doyle was a formidable amateur boxer during his time as a surgical doctor. He blackened the eye of a ship steward, Jack Lamb, who challenged him to a bout when Doyle was serving on his ship. According to one biography, he also outboxed his famously flamboyant partner in practice, Dr George Turnivine Budd. After killing off his most famous literary creation, Sherlock Holmes, who he had described in his first story to be, quote, an expert single stick player, boxer and swordsman, end quote, Doyle tried his hand at producing a large body of disparate works, and this included a novel centred on boxing called Rodney Stone. He would use martial arts to bring Holmes back from the dead. Inspired by E.W. Barton Wright's hybrid martial art and self-defence system Bartitsu, which was being peddled to the middle classes at the time, Doyle had his detective use the system to send his arch-enemy Professor Moriarty to a watery death at the Reichenbach Falls. Doyle's act of creative retconning was an anachronism, as although he wrote The Adventure of the Empty House, where Holmes returns in 1903, the story is being relayed to Watson in 1894, and the events of the fight being described took place three years previously. Barton Wright did not start studying jiu-jitsu until around 1895 and only returned to England to teach his newly formulated Bartitsu in 1898. To add to the literary crime, Doyle misspells the system's name as Baritsu. The modernist author Ernest Papa Hemingway is perhaps one of the most famous fighting writers in the Western world since Plato. He was an avid boxer and even once stated, quote, My writing is nothing. My boxing is everything. End quote. Considered in most top ten lists of the greatest American writers, some of Hemingway's most memorable short stories, such as The Killers, Fifty Grand and The Battler, focus on boxing and boxers. And one of his classic novels, The Sun Also Rises, begins with a description of his protagonist's boxing background. Unfortunately for Hemingway, the hyper-masculine image he liberally demonstrated through his love of hunting, bullfighting, heavy drinking and general competitiveness had a fragile base. Whilst, for the most part, he enjoyed commanding the rooms he entered and imposed a domineering presence in his bohemian circle of writers and artists, he inevitably created enemies. 
Indeed, when one looks at Hemingway's many spats, rivalries and feuds, it's not unlike watching a parody of the long career of a professional fighter. As one might expect of the literary giants before and since him, most of Hemingway's wars were fought with words. He was openly critical of great writers, and unsurprisingly, there were plenty of greats who were vocally critical about the burly alpha male bravado he brought to the modernist movement. Much of this might be seen as so much high-level sparring amongst the intelligentsia, almost an exercise in debate and literary criticism reserved for the elites. In short, despite his scathing attacks on T.S. Eliot, there was little doubt Hemingway still admired this writer and many of his other illustrious targets. Rather appropriately for this show, here are Hemingway's words on Joe Lewis, a man many consider to be the greatest heavyweight champion of all time. Quote, Anybody could hit Joe Lewis, who had the guts to try it. Look at the people who had him down. But he was a good getter-upper. Jack Blackburn could never teach him how not to get hit by left hands. After the first Schmelling fight, he taught Lewis how to avoid a right, what you learn in kindergarten. But Lewis hit so hard and beautifully with both hands, he never learned to box. End quote. However, unlike the vast majority of scholars, Hemingway was happy to turn certain concepts and passions into flesh and blood contests. Never too shy to throw down a challenge or turn away from a fight, Hemingway frequently found himself having to take on men that his literary friend and regular drinking buddy, James Joyce, had enraged on one of their notorious sprees. Hemingway responded to prolific writer Max Eastman's quote-unquote false chest hair and quote-unquote red-blooded masculinity criticisms by starting a brawl in his editor's office. Happy to be literal in his physical demonstrations, the farcical alpha male contest began with Hemingway showing off his hirsute pectorials to Eastman, who responded in kind, and then smacked Eastman on the nose with his book. The bout ended in the two producing radically different interpretations of the fight. Eastman said he threw Hemingway over a table, whereas Hemingway said he simply toyed with Eastman at a distance, not wanting to hurt a man ten years his senior. Hemingway later challenged Eastman to a closed-room fight that never happened. Years later, Hemingway would brawl in a projection room with the great director, actor, screenwriter and producer Orson Welles. Welles was critical of what he saw as Hemingway's misappropriation of Spanish culture, in short, all matadors and machismo. Apparently, both men stopped fighting when they realised the ridiculousness of the situation and fell about laughing. Fellow modernist Wallace Stevens had a more serious ruck with Hemingway after the poet upset the author's sister at a cocktail party. The cause of Ursula returning to her brother with tears in her eyes was that this was the third occasion Stevens had openly insulted Hemingway at a public function. There might have been the exemplifications of the modernist era, but what followed sounded more like the honour duels fought amongst the literati of yesteryear. Hemingway arrived at the cocktail party and promptly punched Stevens into a puddle. Stevens landed a punch to Hemingway's jaw, breaking his hand in two places, before receiving a beating that had him laid up in bed for five days. However, it was a martial arts contest in 1929 involving Hemingway and two other prominent writers that best sums up his fighting rivalries. Morley Callahan and Hemingway both became friends when they worked together on the Toronto Star. Like James Joyce, Callahan possessed a very different personality to Hemingway. However, unlike Joyce, Callahan was a quiet man, and he could fight. In 1925, Hemingway met F. Scott Fitzgerald at the Dingo Bar in Paris and became part of the celebrated writing set of 1920s Montparnasse artistic scene. This included the aforementioned James Joyce as well as Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein. Stein coined the name for their group that became the title of a generational demographic, The Lost Generation, thanks to Hemingway popularising it in his novel The Sun Also Rises, published the following year. Fitzgerald and Hemingway's relationship was a peculiar one that has been well documented between them by their contemporary writers and by biographers. They became fast friends. At the time, Fitzgerald was a far more successful author with established critical recognition. Whilst Hemingway was struggling to get his first novel published, Fitzgerald had three out there, along with one novella, although his most famous work, The Great Gatsby, would not get proper recognition until after his death. He loaned Hemingway money, introduced him to his editor, Max Perk, and was even responsible for getting Hemingway to trim The Sun Also Rises down by 4,000 words. Despite being the current reigning champion, Fitzgerald admired Hemingway and showed this in his support. 
In return, the upcoming contender pulled no punches in his overt criticism of his patron. He criticised Fitzgerald as a writer and a human being in print. He even targeted Zelda, Fitzgerald's wife, for being shallow despite her own brilliance as a writer. Fitzgerald appeared to quietly take the insults on the chin as if it were affectionate banter, although he once asked Hemingway to lay off the criticisms in print. Hemingway ignored and continued, although he would occasionally concede a compliment before moving into more denigration. Hemingway's eventual eclipse of Fitzgerald by 1929 as a literary giant was the exemplification of what I described in my Heel Fighter episode back in season one. He handled his ascent through the ranks of literary recognition in classic hypermasculine fashion, throwing his weight around, shouting the loudest and believing his own hype until it all became a reality. Think of Muhammad Ali declaring he was the greatest at the earliest stages of his career and all the way through to his championship reigns. This isn't to say that Hemingway wasn't kind to his friends. During his rise to success after meeting Fitzgerald, he gave Morley Callahan a leg up in the publishing world. Now, in 1929, with his own debut novel under his belt, Callahan joined his old friend in Paris and they quickly got on to their old subject of boxing. Hemingway wasted little time in challenging Callahan to a private match. His reasons for this are unclear. Was it just a friendly contest, or was Hemingway checking on rising competition in the best way he knew how? After all, Callahan was not only on the rise, but was four years Hemingway's junior. Who better to be timekeeper than the former literary champion, Fitzgerald? The fight has become the stuff of legend, with many facts never fully agreed, including the venue. Most conclude it happened in the basement of the United States Students and Artists Club in Montparnasse area. However, the outcome was not in contention. Round two ended with a much larger Hemingway on the ground. Hemingway was infuriated, but his anger was not directed towards Callahan. He stated that Fitzgerald had deliberately not watched the clock in a plan of sweet revenge to humiliate him. Both the fighters on that day wrote their own accounts, varying their descriptions on how badly Hemingway had been beaten. But Fitzgerald never spoke of the matter. Maybe it is poetic to consider that quiet little Morley Callahan's writing career, although successful, would be overshadowed by this particular moment of victory he had over his era's reigning literary champion in the activity Hemingway said was everything to him. We might add to the list of great boxing enthusiasts the authors Albert Camus, A.J. Leibling, Richard Wright, D.H. Lawrence, Vladimir Nabokov, William Hazlitt, Robert Graves, William Thackeray, FX Tool, and George Plimpton. Camus was an amateur boxer. Thackeray, along with Charles Dickens, witnessed the first attempt at achieving a world heavyweight title in 1860 when England's Tom Sayers took on the USA's John Heenan. Like Dickens, as well as the Prince of Wales and Prime Minister Lord Palmerston, he was amongst those who beat a hasty retreat when the police arrived to break up the illegal event. George Plimpton decided to add to his long list of examples of participatory journalism by stepping into the ring with the great Archie Moore for a three-round sparring match. Moore, a showman himself, recounted in his autobiography that, although he was wary of fighting amateurs, he was careful to give them just enough for a story. After the fight, Moore approached the now vomiting and bloody-nosed Plimpton with a hearty pat on the back and the reassurance that the journalist was entitled to a rematch. Paul Gallico, who mentioned my family's circus in his novel Love Let Me Not Hunger, was perhaps even more masochistic in his journalistic pursuits. Keen to know what it was like to be on the receiving end of a trained fighter's barrage, he was duly knocked out during his sparring match by none other than the Manasseh Mauler, Jack Dempsey. Prolific journalist and playwright Joyce Carol Oates surprised many in her own circle of literary influence when she wrote On Boxing, a seminal work on this particular martial art. Novelist, journalist, voice artist, radio personality, book reviewer and poet Catherine Dunn not only wrote extensively on boxing throughout the 1990s, her collected essays and articles on the sport being published in the book One Ring Circus Dispatches from the World of Boxing, but began training in the sport in her 40s. Many other great writers have suffered more than bruised egos in their confrontations. We have only to look at Miguel de Cervantes, the man often credited with being the originator of the modern novel Don Quixote, itself a parable for martial artists with delusions of grandeur, as an example. Cervantes got into a quarrel with Antonio de Segura at the Royal Palace in Madrid. 
The resulting argument resulted in a sword-fighting duel, where Cervantes disarmed and wounded Segura. Fearing losing his hand for the crime of engaging in a duel on royal property, Cervantes fled Spain for Italy. He would live most of his life in poverty and obscurity, but did win military acclaim when he was wounded in action fighting for Spain against the Ottoman Empire at the Battle of Lepanto. Only a few decades later in England, Shakespeare's contemporary, the great playwright Ben Jonson, slew an actor called Spencer on an archery range in the East End of London. Spencer, who had played parts in both Jonson and Shakespeare's plays, was a known fighter who had got away with killing a man with his unsheathed sword two years previously. Jonson, who had run Spencer through after receiving an injury to the arm, had got away with only having his thumb branded with the letter M for murderer and having to recite the 51st Psalm while pleading forgiveness. He had appealed to the right of clergy and been tried in an ecclesiastical court. Two great writers of Russia weren't so lucky when they chose pistols in their duels in the 19th century. They were the poet Mikhail Lomontov and the author Alexander Pushkin, who both died from fatal bullet wounds. My first martial arts book, Mordred's Victory, begins with an essay I wrote back in the mid-2000s called Martial Academia. Although I stand by the arguments I've made for the dangers of becoming too abstract in one's combative training without taking a visceral reality check, sometimes I wonder if I shouldn't have written an accompanying piece to explain the value of academia. Critical thinking and the scientific process, after all, are part of educated research and help separate useful martial arts knowledge from superstition and mysticism. We should keep those bridges between the intellects and the fighters open. After all, the philosophers, the scholars, the educators and politicians have helped martial arts survive when different systems so easily could have become extinct. Kano Jigaro, the founder of judo, helped make his synthesis of three traditional jiu-jitsu schools and pioneered a modern combat sport through his skills and influence as an academic educator in the Japanese school system. He paved the way in Japan for the newly imported Okinawan martial art of karate and many others with its dogies and belt ranking systems, not to mention an emphasis on improving the character of its students. Sadly, the practicing lawyer and rebel Tang Hyo, who worked tirelessly to promote Chinese martial arts away from impracticality and to debunk its many myths in favour of solid historical research, is little remembered today. Sun Lu Tang was far more influential. In fact, he remains the most influential Chinese martial arts author of all time. Sun Lu Tang was a rare combination of feared fighter and respected scholar who melded his knowledge of Taoist philosophy with the teaching of the three internal systems of Taji, Baguai and Zingi. The martial arts historians Brian Kennedy and Elizabeth Gyo have explained that he is a reason why we have such systems being practiced for health reasons rather than combat. He also helped create the iconic figure of the peaceful, wise, sage martial arts teacher, Trope, to replace the previous brutal images of bandits and militia fighters that had made up his predecessors. For good or ill, by using philosophy and by articulating his training methods in a way that wouldn't threaten the fragile governments or occupying forces, helped propagate the continued practice of many martial arts. By contrast, we have seen the death of many martial arts forms, both as systems for warfare and sport, because of their lack of scholastic patronage. Interestingly, the most well-known work of Musashi Miyamoto, perhaps the most famous historical samurai warrior in at least the Edo period, was the Book of Five Rings. The book is a straight-up manual of his school of Kenjutsu as told from the perspective of a medieval samurai. However, due to Masashi's strong interest and dedication to philosophy in his retirement years, the work is now far more revered and cited as a forced allegory on business strategy than a book on killing fellow duelists in 17th century Japan. Aristocles from 4th and 3rd centuries BCE would go on to become one of the most influential thinkers in Western philosophy. However, he would do so not under the name he inherited from his grandfather, but as Plato, which he received from his wrestling coach. The name comes from the Greek word Platon, meaning broad, and might be in reference to Plato's large shoulders and chest. Plato would become a very proficient wrestler who trained into adulthood and to a high level to be able to compete in the Ismian Games. With his most famous work, The Republic, he argued for the goal of great people to be in tune mentally and physically. He saw combat sports as a mean of body cultivation comparable to the way the mind was exercised. Such idealism is not far removed from what we have seen weaving its way through the history of martial arts practice and teaching. We may even consider the art aspect of martial arts being, despite what Meryl Streep and other intelligentsia have stated to the contrary, to be an actual art. After all, many martial artists have Hemingway and Plato-like relationships between their combative discipline and more famed forms of expression. 
Take, if you must, the 330-minute operatic experimental film River of Fundament. Matthew Barney's epic piece barely conforms to the conventions of even art house cinema. It is more a series of performances recorded over a seven-year period strung together using a loose narrative. The film is not an easy watch unless you are heavily into that particular art scene. I took this abstract bullet for the team. It has no obvious connection to martial arts except when you consider three points. Firstly, the core influence of the work is American novelist and sports writer Norman Mailer. In fact, the entire piece is inspired by his 1983 novel Ancient Evenings and deals with three reincarnations of the author. Mailer is the most obvious spiritual successor to Ernest Hemingway, and true to form, he wrestled with the comparisons made between him and his inspiration. Like the figure he praised and cursed, he shared an obsession with boxing. This could be seen by his obsession with Muhammad Ali, and the half a year he spent writing The Fight, a non-fiction account of Ali's world championship fight with George Foreman in Zaire. Mailer would only be too happy to be one of the interviewees in the 1996 documentary about the bout When We Were Kings. Like Hemingway, Mailer had his own boxing ring and enjoyed sparring with everyone. He even sparred former champion and friend Jose Torres for three televised rounds as part of Torres's book promotion. Mailer also shared Hemingway's huge fragile ego, heavy drinking and a need to assert his masculinity through violence. This led to at least 20 skirmishes on the street and even on television. The same Dick Cavett show infamously saw Mailer headbutt writer and public intellectual Gore Vidal in the green room. Mailer's final brawl occurred when he was 74 and punched the publisher of Esquire. Secondly, Hemingway has a presence in River of Fundament. His spirit is invoked and towards the end we see a dramatisation of his suicide. Finally, there's a brutal performance of Submission Grappling, featuring Pablo Silva and Magno Gama, which might have been a nod to Mailer's own dirty brawling tactics. He bit actor Rip Torn's ear during their work on an experimental film and received two eye gouges when he had a fight one night in an argument over the sexual orientation of his poodles. I kid you not. This fight scene in River of Fundament, set in a car factory, is perhaps one of the most expressive examples of Brazilian jiu-jitsu put on film, although not quite worth watching the entire movie for that particular scene. Having Brazilian jiu-jitsu make its way into the Californian art scene is fairly predictable. Hoyler Gracie's decision to break into Hollywood in 1978 pretty much did for Brazilian jiu-jitsu what Bruce Lee did for Kung Fu, and Wing Chun in particular, when he moved to California in the 60s. To this day, Wing Chun retains a few dedicated students in Hollywood. Robert Downey Jr. and Nicolas Cage are prime examples of long-term students whose interest in the art wasn't just motivated by fight scenes in their movies. By the 1980s, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu became the open secret amongst tough guy celebrities who were intrigued by the Gracie Challenge and no doubt were introduced to footage of the Valley Tudo matches that had been televised in Brazil. With the art first being revealed to audiences in 1987's Lethal Weapon, the film star Mel Gibson was an obvious early convert. The Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu celebrity list is now quite extensive, including many obvious action stars as well as the director Guy Ritchie. However, one of its most dedicated students and one of the few who earned a black belt relatively early compared to his contemporaries is Ed O'Neill. O'Neill is an actor famous for his comedy roles, especially those in the situation comedies Married with Children and Modern Family. When one considers the amount of time and hours on the mat needed to typically get a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, few busy celebrities can make it past blue and purple stages. If they make it to these grades, it's a huge achievement. O'Neill got his black belt through Hori and Gracie after 22 years of training and declared that it was, quote-unquote, the greatest achievement of my life apart from my children. Martial arts theme music is varied. There are great classical pieces inspired by battles, duels and fighting in general that were used for operas, musicals, television and movies. For that matter, musical instruments have a strong relationship and well-known historical connection with martial arts. There's a specific genre of music performed by professional soldiers that is sometimes called martial music. Independently, the different instruments could serve important tactical purposes from intimidating the enemy or to communicate to troops. Perhaps the most universal of combat instruments are the drums that keep a marching army on the move. Other instruments have included whistles, fifes, bugles, trumpets or other horns often used as signals or a primitive form of pre-radio information broadcasting. Then there are triangles and cymbals that usually make up martial music bands. 
from the last Jacobite rising of 1745 and 46 to the finding of David Brooks in 1996, the Scottish bagpipes were declared an instrument of war in UK law. Today, they're regarded as only an instrument of war in wartime. Highland regiments famously enter the battlefield with an appointed pipe player. Meanwhile, Muay Thai fights are always accompanied by music played on the distinctive reed Pai Kayak or Pai Java, the Javanese clarinet. The Klong Klak, a set of true drums, Ching, a set of brass or iron cymbals, and the Kong Moon. Specific sets are arranged for the pre-fight Y crew bows to teachers and Ram Moy ritual dances as well as the rounds of the fight. Having a strong dance element, capoeira is always practised to the orchestral sounds produced by players of the Barambu, Pandiero, Atabak and Agogo. When it comes to musicians, they have arguably a worse record than writers, poets, artists and actors combined for brawling. I am not sure if it is the nature of music, the particular intensity of musical careers, the iconic status of musicians, or combinations of any of the above, but throughout history into the present day, musicians have not been shy about getting physical. Indeed, violence across musical genres has got as extreme as it can get, short of kicking off an actual war. From hip-hop to hardcore, and from extreme metalers to lead belly, there has been no shortage of musical artists who have violently murdered people or been violently murdered themselves. Let's be clear, fighting and violence are natural instincts in all animals. By definition, they are not automatically expressions we can call martial arts. Those who fight regularly may or may not have an interest in martial arts. J.J. Burnell, the bass player and regular lead vocalist of punk band The Stranglers, is a case in point. Throughout the pioneering and heyday of the British punk scene, The Stranglers were often at the centre of violent confrontations. Johnny Rotten might have called them short-haired hippies, but there wasn't a lot of peace when J.J. Burnell got annoyed. He took no prisoners. That included sounds journalist and punk rock historical documenter John Savage, who Burnell tracked down to the Red Cow in Hammersmith, London. Savage had written a bad review of The Stranglers' second studio album, No More Heroes, and for that, Burnell, quote-unquote, punched his lights out. A year previously, Burnell had taken on The Clash's bass player and fashion icon Paul Simonon. According to Burnell, The Stranglers were supporting the Ramones at Dingwalls in Camden, London, and had just walked off stage when Simonon spat on the ground. Spitting or gobbing was a trademark strongly associated with punks, despite the lacks of Mick Jagger already breaking this taboo in the previous decade. Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols attributed his spitting to a severe sinus problem, which he said provoked an annoying habit in audiences who then spat at him as a weird form of affection. Simonon, however, apparently did it as a nervous tick. Anyway, the act got him a punch from Burnell. According to Burnell, after being thrown out by the bouncers, he and Simonon were nose-to-nose in the car park, with his bandmates on one side and the Sex Pistols, the Ramones and the Clash on the other. He also said that the Stranglers' most peaceful short-haired hippie, keyboardist Dave Greenfield, had Johnny Rotten up against the band's ice cream van, their makeshift touring bus at the time. Well, all of that might seem like so much thuggery. None of it can be described as examples of martial arts and certainly not justifiable as self-defence. Although violence was frequently associated with punk, martial arts weren't an obvious fit. The prevailing view and outward appearance of martial arts was that of discipline. Discipline meant order, and early punk was about chaos. Forget boxing too, folk rock legends Simon and Garfunkel had probably put their mark on this in 1970 with their allegorical song The Boxer. 1976 was the year punk caught everyone's attention, and it was also the same year Rocky came out. The overwhelming message of the American dream wasn't exactly in line with the nihilistic vibe of first-generation punks. The Clash's drummer, Topper Heaton, might have enjoyed displaying his love for Bruce Lee by posing with a pair of nunchaku, kicking a sandbag and wearing a yellow game of death tracksuit, but he was an anomaly. Likewise, Punk poet John Cooper Clarke's Kung Fu International comes over as a mildly racist limerick that sits awkwardly amongst Tony Wilson's compilation of legendary punk rock performances. Outside such rare examples as these, interest in Asian martial arts had already been publicly embraced by representatives and icons of other musical genres. Despite their obvious influences in both music and fashion, 70s punks were keen to distance themselves from virtually all other musical or youth movements. 
The King of Rock and Roll, Elvis Presley's martial arts journey, began the same year as Chuck Norris in 1958. It was also the same year they both enlisted in the US military. However, whereas Norris began with judo before he discovered his love for Tang Soo Do at his station in South Korea, Presley was stationed in Germany and learned Shotokan karate from Jürgen Seidel. During his annual leave in Paris, he trained under Tetujio Murakami, an early representative of Shotokan in Europe, who would eventually train under Shiroguru Igami and convert to his Shotokai school. In 1960, Elvis met the enigmatic martial arts pioneer Ed Parker, the father of American Kenpo Karate. Although bearing the name and many of the outward trappings of karate, Parker's system was very much a hybrid fusion – at the time he trained Presley, the Chinese influence on the art, which had come from William Chow, was very evident, but Parker would further rework his syllabus to address modern American self-defence situations. Parker sent Presley to Henry Hank Slomansky to test for his karate black belt. Slomansky had earned his Godan, fourth degree black belt, in Chitaru in Japan, where he also had apparently won an international karate tournament. He would also be awarded three Purple Hearts and eventually finished his military career at the rank of Command Sergeant Major. The story is that he trained and tested his students hard, trying to break them so that their grades were well earned. There were already stories beginning to circulate in the 1950s that celebrities were getting their black belts too easily. In reaction to this, Lemansky apparently put Presley through a rigorous six-week training programme before reporting back to Ed Parker with the words, quote, your boy ain't pretty anymore, but he's a black belt, end quote. Shodokan Karate is a very different school to even the earliest type of Kenpo Karate Ed Parker would have learned, and there was decades worth of stylistic divergences from Chitaru. I'm not quite sure what Presley's black belt qualification represented or how he was tested after a total of two years learning. Elvis Presley continued to train with Ed Parker through the 60s and until his death in 1977. In 1970, he was recommended to train with Kang Ree, who taught his own hybrid system, Pasaru, generally his synthesis of Korean martial arts derived from Japanese and Okinawan martial arts, such as Kong Sudo and Hapkido. Four years later, the king of rock and roll was a seventh dan under Ree, who named him Mr. Tiger, after it was decided to calling him Mr. Panther might carry political connotations. According to Wayne Carman, the author of Elvis's Karate Legacy and the student who first introduced Presley to Ree, the king had an affinity for the number seven. In order to attain this grade, Ree had to be voted the rank of eighth Dan and Presley bought him a Cadillac to say thank you. Perhaps it's testament to Presley's status as a musical icon that comparatively few people remember his clear passion for martial arts. Yet he put martial arts routines into his stage shows, often turning them into some of his trademark poses, and they're in some of his movie fight scenes. He even wore a tailored gi complete with flares. Perhaps Presley's biggest attempt to promote his martial arts in the mainstream is the unreleased documentary he made with Ree and Carmen, The New Gladiator. The film shows Presley demonstrating various trick feats, teaching and joking in a martial arts class. The footage even features him talking to Bill Superfoot Wallace as Wallace receives his fourth dan. Wallace's core karate school was the Shurinru discipline, so I'm not quite sure what his fourth dan represented either. One of Presley's favourite martial arts demonstrations was disarming people holding real loaded guns. The story of Presley instructing a young Alice Cooper to hold a .32 snub-nosed revolver to his forehead before taking the shock rocker to the ground has become one of Cooper's regular anecdotes. Presley's image, certainly during the 70s phase, was not going to be a good fit for the first generation of punks. In fact, the sudden death of Elvis Presley in 77 forms part of the 1980 punk rockumentary DOA A Rite of Passage, somewhat symbolising the death of rock and roll in the wake of this new irreverent and antagonistic movement. At least, Elvis once represented the sort of youth rebellion that used to upset the establishment. The same year he had been graded his seventh Dan and began shooting the new Gladiator, it had been one year since Bruce Lee had died and the Kung Fu boom had exploded. Carl Douglas had more than claimed mainstream disco share with his novelty smash hit Kung Fu Fighting and the squeaky pop star brothers the Osmond put on a full Tang Sudo demonstration choreographed by Chuck Norris for a BBC special. To come to think of it, John Cooper Clark's final line of Kung Fu International might be reinterpreted as the official anarchic punk sentiment to the martial arts craze of their decade. Quote, Enter the dragon, exit Johnny Clark. End quote. That would seem the case, 
except for the fact that Punk's most prominent and successful scrapper, not to mention one of the first generation's most distinctive bass players, had been practicing martial arts since he was 19. JJ Burnell started with Taekwondo and switched to Kyokushin Karate when he was 21. The band's trailblazing success on the Japanese alternative and burgeoning punk scene provided a great opportunity for Burnell to train at the Kyokushin Kaikan in Ikibukuro, which he did in 1978. This also happened to be the same year knockdown champion Yoshiji Soeno broke away from traditional Kyokushin to found Shidokin Karate. This became the school of karate that Bernal taught, becoming the UK's chief instructor in 1991. There's no secret about Bernal's love and dedication for his martial art. There's plenty of footage of him competing in the full contact competitions in Shudokin Karate, and also him teaching right up to the present day. In 2014, he achieved his seventh dan. Whilst Punk's provocativeness quickly became assimilated into the mainstream at the end of the 70s, another street-level movement fighting for a harder-pressed underclass had been evolving in the Bronx, New York. Hip-hop was set to burst onto the scene at the dawn of the 80s. Tied to environments where crime and police brutality were a regular everyday occurrence, hip-hop artists certainly understood violence. The music genre rapidly mutated, diversified, and divided into rival factions. 1992 saw a highly influential group emerge from the East Coast side of the Great Hip-Hop Divide. The Wu-Tang Clan proudly wore their love for martial arts movies in their title, as well as the titles of several of their songs and albums. But this was no novelty outfit. Martial art references taken from the 70s Kung Fu boom were used as metaphors and allegories as they produced various songs about life in poverty on the streets in Staten Island, which they call Shaolin Land. To this day, the group are respected in the hip-hop industry for their artistry and for being able to appeal to both underground and mainstream audiences. From their debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, where two 70s martial arts movie classics are combined in the title, to their most recent original studio album, Once Upon a Time in Shaolin Land, the group don't seem to have forgotten their love of all things Kung Fu. Politics and martial arts have been connected since the first day a warrior had to physically demonstrate their right to lead. The expectancy and tradition that many prominent members of royal families should serve in the armed forces demonstrates such a connection. Every country has its histories of warrior monarchs schooled in the arts of war both on and off the battlefield. In my own country, Henry V's successful propaganda machine, wielded in his lifetime and immortalised generations later by Shakespeare, ensured the iconic image of a crowned leader thrusting headlong into combat. Although Ian Mortimer has done an excellent job in debunking much of the hype surrounding this Lancastrian king, mainstream history maintains that Henry was a brave and skilled fighter on the battlefield. Losing his horse at the Battle of Agincourt, he was reported to have fought on foot as he defended his wounded brother Humphrey. Henry V channelled the image of his battling great-great-grandfather Edward I, an avid fighter in battles before and after his ascension to the throne. Edward had forcefully appropriated Wells's legendary King Arthur for England as his role model. Arthur, with his magic sword and brotherhood of knights, was very much the British martial arts archetype, romanticised in similar fashion to folkloric warrior nobles found in many other cultures. When Shakespeare first wrote his plays, Elizabeth I of England had evoked a Boudican image of an armed female monarch standing in front of her troops as they faced the possibility of a Spanish invasion. Her chosen martial art was archery. Meanwhile, one of Elizabeth's contemporaries in Spain, Donna Ana de Mendoza, the Princess of Eboli, was associated with fencing. The eye patch she wears in her famous portraits has been attributed to hiding an injury she suffered when she was 12 or 14 and cross rapiers with a page. With Donna Anna being cast as a royal rebel and accused of a murderous plot, the concept of the beautiful princess disfigured by a fencing accident adds to the mystery and intrigue that surrounds her reputation. However, with zero evidence of the accident ever occurring, it appears safer to conclude that the eye patch probably hid an atrophied eye caused by a medical condition that would have been deemed socially unacceptable to exhibit in public by a member of the Spanish aristocracy. Elizabeth I's infamous father, Henry VIII, is most credited for jousting, but it would appear, much like the two battles he actually participated in, a lot of exaggeration was built up around his achievements in this combat sport. Like his daughter, he was a skilled archer and also threw javelin and could wield a mean double axe. In his youth, 
He was a tall, strong and athletic man, but that didn't stop him from losing to King Francis I of France in their wrestling contest at the historic Field of the Cloth of Gold meeting in 1520. This was a jacketed wrestling contest, with Francis being trained in Garan or Breton wrestling and Henry in wrestling or Cornish wrestling. Both styles were fought standing up, with the objective being to throw the other person to the ground. The main difference between the two sports comes down to the tightness of the jackets, an item of clothing that was derived from its shepherd culture roots. Bretons preferred tighter jackets to their Cornish counterparts. Henry suggested the bout after he had bested Francis in archery. Francis originally demurred, knowing Henry's egotistical to narcissistic reputation, but relented and won the bout with a Breton trip. Against form, Henry took the loss in good spirit, the two men parted as friends, and there was no wrestling rematch or a rubber contest in another martial art. With both men gaining a victory against one another at this ridiculously lavish and extravagant truce party, it was probably better that way. However, their political relationship would continue in the form of off-and-on wars. The ideal that we might be able to settle conflicts by having two leaders duke it out isn't just the stuff of stories. For example, only in December 2021, Brazil's Simão Peixoto, the mayor of Borba, and ex-councillor Erenu Elvis de Silva apparently settled their differences in a 30-minute three-round mixed martial arts contest. 39-year-old Peixoto apparently defeated his 45-year-old opponent and the two embraced with smiles for the cameras. Make of that whatever you want. Politicians in the modern world have long been attracted to the martial arts, whereas some high-ranking politicians and world leaders have found it useful to leverage patriotic support by using their military background, others are keen practitioners in various combative systems. Genki Sudo, for example, joins Japan's long list of practicing martial arts politicians. In addition to serving as a political independent in the House of Councillors, he is a mixed martial arts fighter and has competed as a professional kickboxer in K1. Meanwhile in the UK, Rosie Sexton is a mathematician and musician who fought as a professional mixed martial artist before becoming a Green Party councillor and later challenged for a leadership position. Sexton's martial arts grade include black belts in Taekwondo, Jitsu Foundations Jiu-Jitsu and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Canada's 15th president, Pierre Trudeau, earned a second degree black belt in Judo under Takahashi School of Martial Arts in Ottawa. There's no secret that Vladimir Putin Russia's sometimes president, sometimes prime minister, has loved judo since his youth and earned his first dan when he was 18. He also extensively cross-trained in taekwondo. However, since Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, the International Judo Federation and European Judo Federation stripped Putin of his honorary president and ambassador roles. The World Taekwondo Federation followed suit, stripping Putin of his honorary ninth-degree black belt status. One has only to read Alex Gillis's A Killing Art to see the strong political connections between Taekwondo's two largest associations and the governments of South and North Korea. Modern history's most reviled dictator, Adolf Hitler, promoted the virtues of boxing in his book Mein Kampf. Although he had served as a soldier and had been wounded in action, Hitler wasn't much of a martial artist, but was keen to toughen the German youth through sports like boxing. Uganda's brutal dictator Idi Amin learned how to box in the army and rose to become the Ugandan light heavyweight champion in 1951 until 1960. Drunk on power in 1974 as the country's ruler and despite now being totally out of shape, Amin decided to open the 6th All-African Amateur Boxing Championship in Lugogo, Kampala with a boxing match between him and the national boxing coach Peter Serawagi. This contest went back to a grudge Armin had harboured from 16 years previously. This was when Serawagi had floored Armin at the 1958 National Championship at the Nakawa Engineering School. To add insult to injury, the boxing coach was then a welterweight. This time the match was staged for Armin to win and Serawagi had to take the beating and the fall. The USA has a fairly strong tradition of presidents who are keen martial artists, starting with their inaugural leader. George Washington became proficient in Irish collar and elbow wrestling when he had to deal with bullies at school. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president, was also a noted collar and elbow wrestler. One story goes that he once threw a man who was roughing up one of his supporters before returning to his speech. Another keen wrestler, 18th President Ulysses S. Grant, apparently apologised to Robert E. Lee for the disarray of his camp at the famous surrender of the Confederates at Apotomax due to several of his troops joining him in some sparring the previous night. 
44th President Barack Obama is perhaps one of David Posner's most famous Taekwondo students, and it was an interest shared with his fellow Democrat, the 42nd President Bill Clinton. However, perhaps the USA's most dedicated martial artist was Theodore Teddy Roosevelt. Known for his highly adventurous and physical nature, Roosevelt had helmed his own Rough Riders, the first United States volunteer cavalry and the only regiment of its kind to see action in the Spanish-American War. When he was president, he regularly indulged in boxing and wrestling in the White House, frequently inviting guests to spar with him. When Carnot's judo, then generally going by its jiu-jitsu title, made its way to the Americas, Roosevelt was immediately interested. He switched from boxing to more grappling-based arts as he got older and achieved the rank of third-degree brown belt under the Kodokin representatives John O'Brien and Yoshikie Yamashita. As you can see, it's quite easy to ramble on about the way martial arts intersect with so much in life. My hope is that those listeners who feel I go down too many self-indulgent rabbit holes will have a better idea of the Warren I inhabit and maybe they'll stick around to explore these many different tunnels. I don't believe that martial arts are everything. There are so many things in my life that do not revolve around martial arts. My family and their interests are important to me. The places I wish to visit in the world do not stem from a direct interest in combative disciplines. As far as passions go, writing is probably my first love. The first book I wrote was not a martial arts book and I don't intend for it to be my last non-martial arts, non-self-protection book. My martial arts book collection, although sizable and growing, does not have representation in my living room or bedroom bookcases. Similar comparisons might be made with my podcast and video playlists where I mainly listen to history, literature, psychology and classic movie analysis. It might surprise those who enjoyed my martial movie massacre regular features that I do not watch many martial arts movies these days and I wouldn't count an overtly martial arts centred movie on my top 10 list of favourite films. My love for comic books might be what sent me on my own martial arts journey but martial arts did not make me fall in love with comic books. Once I spoke to an old work colleague I had known for around 15 years at the time and they did not believe I had an interest in martial arts. It was a total shock to them. Indeed, I don't do very well at martial arts conventions or worst of all at meeting people whose introduction to me is that they do martial arts. Then there are people in my life, very close to me, who say that sooner or later I will bring up martial arts in conversations. Perhaps that goes back to the Warren of spin-off topics perhaps a warren of snares if you will pardon forcing in an awkward and tasteless Watership Down reference. However, let's not think of them as distractions, but rather interconnecting ideas and useful passages to find a new angle. Martial arts might not be everything, but maybe everything is martial arts.
My other books, Wrong Fu and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, are also available through Amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Wrong Fu is a prequel to my Bullshit Sioux and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com for details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltale or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I would be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and at long last, TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there, as well as filming of my various lessons, so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.